0: Let's now open our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians, the fourth chapter. You might recall that I mentioned that we would be returning to our series on 1 Corinthians, Lord willing, sometime after the first of the year. Those churches that follow a church calendar, and I feel no obligation to do that whatsoever, find this to be the first Sunday in Advent. And on the first Sunday in Advent, the theme is the return of Jesus Christ. So we come to the end of what they consider to be the church year, and then you begin on the, on the following Sunday with those texts that deal with the coming of Christ. And I sometimes follow that pattern because I think it's good to stress those events. And so we will be stressing the return of Christ. The last hymn that we sing will be an Advent hymn that anticipates the hymns that we will be singing over this next month that will deal with the return of Jesus. So this morning, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. And I must tell you, I love this passage. I just dearly love it. Well, let's pray. Almighty God and our Father in heaven, we pray that the Lord Jesus Christ, the exalted King who is coming again, who has poured out His Spirit upon the church, and whose spirit indwells every believer here as a temple of the Holy Ghost, and this congregation as a temple of the Holy Spirit. We ask that now, O Lord, the King, that Thou wilt rule and reign in our hearts, and just as we have sung, anticipating that day in which we will bow the knee before Thee, and all the watching world will. We pray that even now before before Thee, within our souls we will bow before thee as the king of glory the king of glory now and acknowledge that thou art the head and king of the church and so as we turn to this wonderful passage may it be full of encouragement for the people of god this morning and may it also heavenly father be used of thee to draw lost people out of darkness and into light into a saving relationship with jesus christ our lord in whose name we humbly pray. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning with verse 13. This is the Word of God. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The Word of God. Please be seated. Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, the King is coming. The King will return. And this is the hope of the church and the hope that should fill every Christian heart. So we are about to commemorate Christmas, but we live after the birth of Christ, and the next great epoch on God's calendar is the return of the Son of God in glory. And as many of us go through the Christmas season with the joy of redemption foremost in our thinking, many of us also have very heavy burdens. We have strife. We have hard trials. We have griefs of various sorts. So once again, how appropriate that we give attention to the triumph of the one who was born in Bethlehem. Yes, and also who, in His cross, in His resurrection, in His ascension, but also in His final coming will be seen to be our glorious King. Now, the first thing we see as we come to the text is Christian grieving, Christian grieving. Now, don't just put down grieving if you're a note-taker. Christian grieving is the all-important way of looking at this. Because, you see, the purpose of the text is to comfort the grieving believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and to show that Christians grieve, but Christians do not grieve hopelessly. But when we grieve, we grieve in hope, a certain hope, of the return of Jesus Christ. The background, is there no hope for the Christian dead? If Christ comes back for us when we are alive, because they were living expectantly, we know that we will be with the Lord. But what about our Christian loved ones? And Paul is concerned to correct false viewpoints about what will happen to the Christian dead. So, His use here is to comfort the grieving by pointing them to the sure and certain resurrection that will take place when Jesus Christ returns, that awaits all Christians who die before Christ returns. And these promises that we find in this chapter and elsewhere in Scripture also revolutionize the Christian's view of death. Our Christless culture will either mask over or else despair when it thinks upon death. And in Paul's day, death in the Greco-Roman world was just a hopeless affair. And this is seen today on the inscriptions that describe that hopelessness that, that can still be read today in various parts of the, of the then-Roman world, but not so for the believer in Christ. Paul is saying to them, we don't view death as the pagans do. We don't view death as the Greco-Roman does. We view death in a thoroughly Christian manner. And so the Christian approach never trivializes death, because death is the result of the fall of Adam, and all his posterity fell in him. But we live in the joyful hope, nonetheless, of the returning Jesus Christ, our Redeemer Who will raise the dead with many precious promises of an undefiled, unfading inheritance that belongs to every child of God? And so Paul instructs the Thessalonians, the Christian dead will not miss out. There is a Christian hope. You need further instruction, and so by divine inspiration, he brings it. Now, I want to point out something that I think is important for us to note, and that is the emphasis here on the dead who have been buried, who are raised. I think that's important to mention because as we see the rise of paganism in our culture, we also see the rise of cremation in our culture. A while back, Pastor McDonald was preaching a class in which he dealt with death and dying and at the end of the class, he asked if I would come in and teach a class on cremation, and you can find it online. It's an hour's worth of information about it, its history, where it comes from, why it is not consistent with Christian ethics. But Christians, and especially Reformed Christians through history, have always understood that the dead are to be reverently handled, and they are to be buried. Buried. I'm reading from the second Helvetic Confession of Faith, which is one of our great confessions in the Reformed Church, and it deals with the burial of bodies. And it said, "...as the bodies of the faithful are the temples of the Holy Spirit, which we truly believe will rise again at the last day, scriptures command that they be honorably and without superstition committed to the earth." And also that honorable mention be made of those saints who have fallen asleep in the Lord, and that all duties of familial piety be shown to those who are left behind, their widows and orphans. We do not teach that any other care be taken for the dead. Therefore, we greatly disapprove of cynics who neglected the bodies of the dead or most carelessly and disdainfully cast them into the earth never saying a good word about the deceased or caring a bit about those whom they left behind. Cremation is profane. It is not Christian, and it is not an option for the believer. Now, if one of your Christian loved ones has been cremated, it's not going to stop the resurrection in the last day. Jesus Christ is Almighty Lord. Those who have been lost at sea will be raised. Those who have have been cremated because there was a plague and bodies were burned. They will be raised. He is in complete control of all atoms and molecules. But the point is, how should we treat the Christian dead? I simply mention that in passing because I think it's important for us to recognize the body, according to this passage that is placed in the ground, is in Christ, in union with Jesus Christ. When Jesus died for you, he died for the whole of you, body and soul. And that means that certainly we should treat the Christian dead, the body that is now in union with Christ until Jesus comes, even in the grave, in union with Christ, should be treated with respect. And as the Apostle Paul teaches us in this passage and other places we read, That the body sleeps, not the soul, but the body sleeps. When we put them in the ground, we are putting them to bed until Jesus comes again. Think about death, but do not think about it morbidly as a believer. Thomas Boston said, when you lie down at night, compose your spirits as if you were not to awake till the heavens be no more. And when you awake in the morning, consider that new day as your last and live accordingly. So the applications of this passage are beyond the immediate application. It puts grief over the dead of loved ones in a proper framework so that no Christian may be hopeless about the Christian dead. But more broadly, people of God, there are other kinds of grief. The Christian grieves over the state of the world, over his own sin, over losses, of many kinds. The teaching of Scripture here applies to the many sad things of life. It lifts up our head to the time when Jesus Christ will return for His saints. It lifts up our head to the reality that the time will come where there will be an end to all sorrow in this world, and that every tear will be wiped away. Specifically, what are the comforts for grieving hearts that the Apostle Paul brings here? Well, the second point is the first comfort. The second point is, Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus was raised from the dead. We find that in verse 14. Verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And so he is saying here that there is an inseparable connection between the resurrection of Jesus and his people, the real historical Jesus we're talking about here, that Jesus was put in the tomb bodily, that Jesus was raised from the dead, the real historical Jesus. Do you remember in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20 that Paul the apostle by divine inspiration speaks of the return of Christ and he says, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who sleep. The first fruits in the Old Testament were the first of the entirely anticipated crop. And so when he is saying that Jesus is the first fruits of the Christian dead, his point there is that the resurrection has already begun. The entire resurrection harvest will follow because in Jesus' resurrection, it has already begun. And it's something like that that the Apostle Paul is thinking here. In Christ's resurrection, the resurrection harvest will happen because in Christ, it has already begun. Jesus was not abandoned to the grave. None of those in union with him are abandoned to the grave. The dead in Christ shall rise. That's why Paul uses the term asleep there in verse 14. Sleep refers to the Christian's body, not to his soul. The body is put to bed in the ground, not the soul. Christ is said to have died. The Christian is said to sleep. He bore the wages of sin so that now the believer is said to sleep because the wages of sin have been paid once for all. And He will come and reunite the souls of those that have gone to heaven with their bodies in the resurrection. So Paul uses the term sleep for the simple reason, I think I picked this up from Leon Morrison reading years ago, that sleeping people wake up. So if you die, your soul will go to heaven if you are a believer in Christ. Your body will sleep in the grave until the resurrection. And when he comes, sleeping people wake up. There's no reason to be uneasy about the future of those who die before the return of Christ. Now, that's our first comfort. The resurrection of Jesus has taken place, and we are in union with the risen Christ. The second comfort is your third point, and that is, Jesus will come and raise the dead. Jesus will come and raise the dead. And it uses this term parousia, a word that is used of the visit of a king or the visit of an emperor. And the idea of a secret rapture is foreign to the New Testament. There is one return of Christ and it will be bodily, visible, immediately followed by the final judgment. But the separation of body and soul we must understand, are not, is that separation is not permanent. Christians who were alive when Jesus returns will not. In the Greek New Testament, New Testament, this is a double negative. It's the strongest way that New Testament Greek has for saying a negative. And he says that when Jesus returns Christians who were alive will not precede the Christian dead. They will be raised and reunited with their souls first. So what will happen when Jesus comes again in relation to the things we are seeing here this morning? Well, this is the fourth thing we see. What will happen? First, Jesus will come with a shout of command. He will come as conqueror. The Lord Himself will come, He tells us. Ellicott in his commentary says, His own august personal presence. A mighty summons to think of Jesus before Lazarus' tomb when He said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus had no choice but to come forth from the tomb. I always laugh because of the old, some of the old preachers who used to say that if he had not been specific, all the dead would have, would have been raised. But he said specifically, Lazarus, come forth. But when he comes, it is as if he speaks the name of every believer that is in the grave, and we will rise. It's a marvelous thing to consider. He comes with a shout The return of Christ will be public and open. And Jesus returns with a sovereign summons. The word is used of military commands. Probably here used to stress that Jesus who came once in deep humility is not humbled any longer. But he comes in the magnificence of his glory. As a total conqueror he comes. Now I personally view... In this text, these three things that are told to us about the shout of the Lord Jesus and the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, I view them as as indistinguishably connected, but as separate things that happen when Jesus comes again. Not every commentator or expositor takes that viewpoint. But do you remember in John's gospel, chapter 5, verse 28, That Jesus says, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So when Christ Jesus returns with that voice of command, all the dead will be raised, Christian and non-Christian alike though the Christian will be raised and his body glorified. The second thing according to this text that takes place is that there is the voice of the archangel. That, of course, the only archangel we read of in the New Testament is Michael, of whom we read in Jude chapter 9, who wars against Satan. And Paul is telling us the voice is one of victory. I always think of this sculpture of Jacob Epstein that's on the The uh, facade of uh, Coventry Cathedral, where you see him with his lance as he has Satan underfoot. Well, that's the idea here. Are you listening for the voice of the Lord? The shout of the Lord? Are you listening for the voice of the archangel? When that sound comes, it will be heard the world over. No one will mistake it. And then thirdly, there is the trump of God, which brings to mind the sounds that accompany divine revelations, especially in the Old Testament, such as Exodus 19 or the holy wars, uh, Jericho and the blowing of the trumpets, the trumpets announcing freedom, the trumpets announcing deliverance, uh, the, the redemption uh, in the year of Jubilee. All of those indicators of the blowing of the trumpet now summarized in the blowing of the trump of God at the last day. They might, some of them might have thought of Roman soldiers who used trumpets to strike tents or to form lines or to announce a march. And many of these might come to the hearer's mind. But in the passage that Pastor McDonald read for us this morning, in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, we read, For the trumpet will sound And the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. That trumpet will sound. And then when this happens, the dead in Christ shall rise first. They will rise before the living believers, those who were alive when Jesus comes at that time, The dead in Christ will rise before the living believers are caught up to be with Christ. They will rise before the living believers are changed. And the dead must come forth. And though Paul deals with the Christian dead, all the dead will rise as John 5 teaches us. Bone to bone will come together. Dust reconstituted as bodies. All will hear the voice of the Son of God even the wicked will hear the voice of the Son of God. As, to use the words of Boston, the wicked will be dragged forth as so many malefactors out of a dungeon to be led to execution. But Paul deals here with the Christian dead and our consolation. And the saints whose bodies will be raised up according to 1 Corinthians fifteen forty-two through 44, and I will deal with this, Lord willing, when we get that far in 1 Corinthians, the bodies will be Incorruptible, glorious, powerful, and spiritual. But note something very sweet indeed. The dead in Christ shall rise. And you know that the Apostle Paul uses that preposition in, sometimes other prepositions, but that one in particular as a way of speaking about our indissoluble faith union with Jesus. And so the faith that you have in Jesus now means that you are in union with Christ and Christ is in union with you. Which means that your Christian loved ones, their bodies are still in union with Christ. And He has not forsaken them to the grave. He knows every last molecule. He knows, he knows them exhaustively. And the dead in Christ will rise, people of God, so that when you grieve for your Christian loved one, which you should, it's right, you do not grieve hopelessly because you know they are in union with Christ and you will see them again and that Christ has redeemed them, body and soul, the believer's body in union with Christ will be raised. And oh, consider, some here have placed tenderly children in the grave. Is not God a God to us and our children? You will see them again. And of this There is, to use the words of the canons of Dort, there is no reason to doubt. And then, fifthly, what happens? The church. The (laughs) word that is used here is sometimes used of, of a public welcome of an official. The church meets the Lord in the air. And the text tells us Again, a literal translation that we will be seized or carried away by force to be up in the presence of the returning Christ. And we will meet him in the air. And no doubt this is stressed because the air is the place that we might think of as demonic turf. Ephesians 2:2 2, 2 speaks of Satan as the prince of the power of the air. And so what is Paul saying that we will be seized up to be with Christ no more demonic turf because he is totally the victor and his victory is complete. Will you also notice there's no purgatory here? Purgatory has no biblical basis whatsoever. And those holding to purgatory must apply it to believers also when Christ returns, but there's nothing of it here. They will simply be raised, they will be with Christ forever. What consolation there is for the people of God. What peace, what comfort, what encouragement we should be giving one another in view of the return of Christ! in view of what is promised to the Christian dead. And I want to call upon you to let nothing dampen or remove this comfort from you. 2 Peter 3 speaks of scoffers. And the scoffers were saying, well, it's been all this time and Jesus hasn't returned yet. I guess He's just not going to come. And the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 3 addresses that very issue. And there are scoffers still. The authority that we have that Jesus will come again and raise the Christian dead is the authority of God's Word. I don't expect unbelievers to believe that authority. I have every reason to expect that those who are filled and empowered by the Spirit of God for Christian living will believe the authority of the book. And, We have Jesus' own definite word, many passages in Holy Scripture that explain these things to us. You believe that Jesus was raised from the dead if you're a Christian. Why is it a stretch for you to believe that He will come again and raise you? And so let's live in these realities and let nothing remove or dampen the comfort because the issue is the authority of the Bible. And all of these things hang together. Which leads me to the fifth and final thing that I want to say here Christian encouragement. Christian encouragement. This is of personal importance to you, believer. Everything we have said here is of personal importance to you, to every true believer in Christ. And I mean, first of all, let your life be determined by looking for the return of Jesus Christ. The Thessalonians really loved one another, and they needed more knowledge of a truer understanding. What's going to happen to our Christian dead? We know that if Christ comes again tomorrow, we'll go up, but what about those who have already died? So they needed a truer understanding. The dead will enjoy Christ's return along with the living. And they should be actively encouraging one another. Notice verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. And so should we. And we neglect these truths with great, great loss. We are called to help one another live in the reality of the coming of Christ, the union of the body with Christ, the soul that goes to be with Jesus in the intermediate state in between and we are called to be prepared for what will happen before the return of Christ. And so, brother, sister, in Christ, where o oh, death is your victory? Where o oh, death is your sting? Christ is risen. A future has been given to every one of you. A future has been given with the past the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And the bodies of the Christian dead will be raised and will be incorruptible, glorious, powerful, and spiritual. And those believers' bodies who have not died will be transformed. And together, we will all be forever with the Lord. Let nothing dampen this. Let nothing keep you from knowing and believing way in the depths of your heart that this is our hope now when the New Testament uses the word hope it doesn't mean it's kind of hope it will happen, it means a certainty this is the certain hope for every believer in Jesus Christ it's the answer to this kind of ennui that sometimes can fill our hearts when we don't think biblically a kind of depression that can come over life We shouldn't live that way. We have the promise of God. We know Jesus Christ. We are in union with Him. We have a hope. We should not be living a depressed life. And whatever your eschatological position may be, do not allow it to divert your Christian life from that one Christian hope that is out before us. For example, Do not think that the church is called to or that there is any hope given to us in Scripture of the Christianization of this world so that our hope becomes, I'm not talking about being good citizens, I'm talking about our hope wherein we live so that for some Christians the hope becomes Christianizing the world. There's nothing in Scripture about that at all, we are told that in the latter days, perilous times will come. Our hope is not in this world. It is not in this life. And so, people of God, don't let anything keep you from that hope, but rather, learn to think and meditate upon these truths so that the hope begins to fill your heart more and more, and you live for these things. And you needn't be overwhelmed or overburdened by any loss In this world. Again, it's applicable to any kind of grief. And a minister or a Christian counselor might rightly go to this passage and say, we do not grieve as those who have no hope, whatever grief we may be experiencing. And the Christian's outlook is different from the world's. We do not live as if life were meaningless. Why not? Because We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Paul just excludes from our lives, living hopelessly, and fills our hearts with the hope of the gospel, which includes the return of Jesus Christ. So, grieve when you must grieve. Grieve, but not unduly, not immoderately, as, as will the pagan. Don't grieve as if there's no Christian hope that is held out for you. And so, we can persevere with patience. Christ rose. All things are new. We do not have to be lost in depression. Christ came. He's coming again. And are things hard for you now? very hard. I never minimize legitimate pain, sorrow, or grief. I only want to stress that God's grace is greater than what you are now experiencing. So look up, brother. Look up, sister. Look up from this world to the next. Look up from your sorrows to the promise of your undefiled, unfading inheritance. Look up, because your redemption draweth nigh. Live in hope, live in readiness, because this peace that the Lord Jesus promised in John 14 to his disciples is applicable to any believer at any time and in any circumstance. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you have been given the right to live at peace in any circumstance because of an ultimate hope and because of the presence of Christ with you. And this hope can characterize, let me stress, This hope can characterize only believers in Christ. Only believers in Christ. We move on in chapter 5. It says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security and then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. See, there's no hope that's given here for the unbeliever as you look to your future. But he says to the believer in verse 4, but you are not in darkness, brothers, in that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Do you see the difference? Tomorrow, if you're an unbeliever, tomorrow is too late. The throne will be set up, the books will be opened, and if Christ's condemned, then no one can save So come to Christ now. And I want to conclude by reading something from J.C. Ryle, one of my favorite passages in Bishop Ryle. He says this, The world has not yet done with Christ. Myriads talk and think of Him as of one who did His work in the world and passed on to His own place like some statesman or philosopher, leaving nothing but his memory behind him. The world will be fearfully undeceived one day. That same Jesus who came 18 centuries ago in lowliness and poverty to be despised and crucified shall come again one day in power and glory to raise the dead and change the living And to reward every man according to his works. The wicked shall see that Savior whom they despised, but too late, and shall call on the rocks to fall on them and hide them from the face of the Lamb. Those solemn words which Jesus addressed to the high priest the night before his crucifixion shall at length be fulfilled. You shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. The godly shall see the Savior whom they have read of, heard of, and believed, and find like the queen of Sheba that the half of his goodness had not been told. They shall find that sight is far better than faith, and that in Christ's actual presence is fullness of joy. Fullness of joy, people of God. Because 1 John 3, 2 says, It doth not yet appear what we shall be, but but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for you shall see Him as He is. Amen.